hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome back. This is our one of the first episodes we're doing that's not related to supernatural creatures or oh. alien interdimensional cats out of the bag. beings. Yeah, I mean, wait, no cats, is it, it going to be about cats that are out of the bag? No cats coming out of the bag in a sense <laughs> because the metaphor of a cat coming out of a bag has to do with a, a truth that is revealed, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And today's headlines. The golden age of fruity lovers, left in the dark, how the right side of the brain took over, untapped powers, and the lost legacy of the plant-animal symbiosis. This is an episode about man's fall from grace, and it has to do with um, why the brain is divided into two hemispheres, and theories and studies relating to that. Today's episode is based on Return to the Brain of Eden, uh, Restoring the Connection Between Neurochemistry and Consciousness. This is written by Tony Wright and Graham Ginn. It has a forward by Dennis K. McKenna, PhD. Um, so you have the- you have a theory, and I'm going to talk about their theory, basically. Um, they have a theory about like the de-evolution is that a word? The de-evolution <laughs> of human beings, sort of how there was like a peak period, right? Our mm-hmm. brains, our brains got bigger and bigger. And why did our brains get so damn big? And like, why? How did human beings survive? And all the other hominids and hu- like, I was gonna say humanoids. All the other um, <laughs> human-like ancestors that we had died out. Like, like there was this peak period of our brain growing in size, right? And then it, their sort of theory is that suddenly we fell from grace and we started to, to fall away from that. And you're giving me this look right now. Sydney is giving me this look, which is perfect, <laughs> which is perfect because they are highly aware that this is a controversial theory and it has to do with like the brain split up and the left side of the brain is trying to basically hijack our lives and drive us off a fucking primordial cliff. And the, and the right side of the brain is dormant, but is waking up, but it, it might be too late. But basically like they. But like it used to be awake. Is that what you're suggesting? That's what they're <laughs> yes. suggesting. Yes. There used to be a golden age of man. So look, evolutionary biologists have long been puzzled by the explosive and rapid expansion of the human brain. And then also by the hemispheric lateralization, which seems to be like an apparent disintegration of right and left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Basically, if our brain looks like a gray walnut that's been split in two, like why is that? You know, why is that the case? Like why has it separated? They get into... There's this universal myth of a prehistoric golden age. They tie it to the age where human beings had just come out of the rainforest. You know, we were living in the tree. Like, let's say we evolved from from apes, right? Yeah. Or chimpanzees or or that kind of of, bonobos species. (laughs) 
They talk about bonobos in the book. Totally. Hey. They're oh like the God. closest ape ancestor, I think. They have. Did the- you know they have the most <laughs> sex out of any other species? And they 75% of their sex is due to pleasure. That's the only thing I'm going to remember from this book. I Okay, wow. I knew that about dolphins, that they only have sex for pleasure. But I, did, I guess, I mean, it makes sense for apes, too, because that's what we do. We are also apes. No, these creatures are fucking all the time. I'm telling oh. you, 75%. Wait, are you not? Well, no, They. I think they are. I think we have a lot to learn from them. They seem very happy and are there brain aggressive. Splitting That's a good question. This is not about bonobos. So, so it has to do with this forest environment. It has to do with the, the food that they were eating, right? We came down from the trees. We were eating fruit. The effects that fruit has on the brain will go into and and how divorcing ourselves, leaving the forest, being forced to leave the forest, right? Going into the savannas, going into the savannas. We're talking about evolution, going into the savannas, hunting, eating animals, eating grains, how Building that might shelter. have how that might have led to the disintegration of our brains and and the effects that that has. Mm. Um and and they talk about you know the the golden age um, that we could have had other abilities like psychic abilities, mental abilities. You know that ties into uh, some of the topics that we've covered, where it's like you know this this actually this episode kind of gives us a really good context for a lot of things that we've talked about. It gives me context for some of the things that I've felt in my life, seriously. And I'll tell you more about that. And I'm curious to know if you have stories relating to that. I mean, you know, my goal is not like every book that we cover or subject that we cover, you're supposed to take it all at face value. The way I see it is like every book has either one or two little puzzle pieces, fragments that we can sort of arrange and start to piece together with everything else. So that's how I kind of see these things. So the rainforest, what does the rainforest and the diet of fruits have anything to do with anything? Well, here's a little overview. Basically, we favored a more, here's a new word for me, frugal, <laughs> I can't even say this. <laughs> frugal. Fru, fru, frugivorous. <laughs> Frugivorous? Frugivorous. Did you know that was a word? You're going to have to spell that. F-R-U-G-I-V-O-R-O-U-S. Frugivorous. O-R-O-U-S. Everybody, I want you to listen to this word. (laughs) Take it home. Take it to a party. You'll be the smartest person within (laughs) two minutes of saying this word. Oh, like a frugivore. Like carnivorous, omnivorous. Ha-ha. And that means it's a diet rich in flavonoids, which is MAO inhibitors and neurotransmitter precursors that are low in steroid containing or inducing elements. So Hmm. their theories in terms of food and this disintegration of the brain and how that kind of leads to the downfall of man, it, you know, has to, has to do with steroids basically. And like foods that either, induced steroids and started inducing growth and hormones a lot faster versus, you know, foods like fruits that were sort of prolonging the juvenile period, they call it. Can I just say I love fruits? So I'm really excited what this is going to mean. 
I've been eating a lot of fruits in the past couple of years myself. So <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say in the past couple of days, like after reading this book, I've been just having a frugivorous diet. <laughs> frugivorous. I don't know if it's healthy to only eat fruits, but we're talking about evolution. So things have right. changed for us. You know, this regimen mimicked and fostered a positive feedback loop in which pineal functions, including neocortical expansion and hemispheric integration were potentiated. What they're saying is that the brain was working more in harmony at that time and because of what we were eating. They talk about like, you gave me a funny look when I said, you know, human beings were forced out of the forests, right? According to this theory of evolution. Yeah. But they talk about climate change and mm. and how that pushed people out of the forest, essentially. They talk about other things that could have led to human beings becoming bipedal and stuff. So that means that our diet shifted, right? And I started talking about this earlier. They shifted to roots, tubers, grass seeds, animal proteins. And in their theory, it triggered a reversal of this positive feedback loop that they talk about. So it's a reversal of pineal potentiation, the pineal gland. It's a reversal of hemispheric integration, so disintegration. The, the pineal dominance was suddenly disrupted by steroid-mediating testosterone-driven functions. And this book is very scientific. I mean, I call it fringe science, but the amount of studies they have and incredible like scientific information, I had to basically try to avoid a bunch of chapters. <laughs> like They were falling asteroids that was just full of breaking down the science behind the food and everything oh, like wow. this. So this yeah. is a, I think this is a really great book. And like I said, this is kind of the way I felt about messengers of deception. Even if you don't believe in their theory, there's so much amazing information in here that would can cause you to think about all kinds of things. And yeah. they draw from a lot of scientists and authors that may not share their point of view, but they, they find their research super fascinating. One thing you can't do is go into this these studies by saying no and being a skeptic because then once you start researching stuff, all you're going to do is try to prove your right your bias. So you kind of have to be open-minded. And just like, you know, we're open-minded to the fact that like a lot of what we're saying may or may not be true. Well, the possibility that it could be true is worth talking about and exploring. Yeah. So we're talking about a fall from grace. This fall from grace, which we'll get into in a minute, like what does that mean? Basically, like they believe that there was an evolutionary glitch with the way we developed. And, and they believe that we are not these incredible, the smartest things that have ever walked the earth. I mean, they, they don't believe that we are at the peak of our capabilities and potential. I mean we don't even believe that like we don't even believe that we were able to build the pyramids of Giza we think the aliens did it because like, humans weren't capable of that we're barely capable of it now they've like tried to do studies of recreating the the science or the whatever the archaeology behind how they built those architecturally and it's nearly impossible but if if what you're saying is true it's like well you know but there we're, is we're so limited now <laughs> But there is this but there is this collective arrogance that we are 
we can build anywhere and and you know mm-hmm. we have we have the best phones and the best laptops we build the coolest buildings you know yeah. uh, there's this ease with expansion and technological advancement and there's just like this these javelins that are being thrown and like we're we're see ourselves as these heroes but meanwhile we have this violent world that we live in and it's been violent for a really long time technology is getting better which is not comforting we we live in we live in a world of war which is pertinent to what's happening right now genocide we're destroying the planet that we live on and we're having increased problems with interpersonal relationships like on a small scale sometimes we can't even get our relationships right like our relationships are crumbling or our friendships are on the fringe or we want to call people more we want to be more social but we can't but we make an effort but we don't, you know, like it's like this weird denial that we have in a way where we think we're the best, but we're also suffering and like more people than ever on medication. You know, I read an article that during the pandemic, so many people went back on antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, medication for concentration. I mean, and it's, and it's, it's not a bad thing, but like we're, curing we're trying to deal with these symptoms and i think more importantly they kind of see it like there are sometimes glimmers of light that show through our lives where things get a little bit easier where like somehow you happen to have the greatest fucking day and you're on fire and everything's going well and no one knows that you barely slept that night or no one knows that like, you know, I don't know, like you're maybe ate a weed brownie and you happen to just like <laughs> trip into and dance your way through the frequencies and have like the kind of perfect mix of energy to enjoy your day or enjoy a concert or have the greatest conversations where your consciousness is altered. They see it as like, you know, it's a fall from grace but it's not our fault. Like we kind of had developed this way. Our, the the left side of our brain is is dominating our lives. But where are the clues for when? How can we kind of reverse these things? And and how can we prove that this is even happening in the first place? Because some people don't believe that there is a difference between the left and right. And they like there's a bunch of theories now that that's not true and it's been debunked. But there's so much research against the idea that you can just say that's been debunked. And we'll go into that. Right. <laughs> so these are two quick stories from the authors that helped inspire some of the research into this book. So okay. Graham Ginn, one of his tactics to connect with his daughter and have a conversation with her is to play t- table tennis with her. Um, is she like and- a baby or? <laughs> Get a baby play table tennis? No, I don't like know. A, like, what no, do like you mean? No, like a teenager. Like a teenager to talk to them, to have a conversation okay. with them. Like, like okay. it's not so easy to talk sometimes, right? Like, and so yeah. especially not to your teenager. So, you know, he would play table tennis, you know, with his daughter. And they would, yeah, would, and they would have fun and laugh. And eventually they would get talking. And it was just like a nice way to connect with each other, to bond, right? People have to do totally. things to bond with their kids. Like, you know, yeah. uh, I know the story about Terry Crews who got into building computers with his son, and that's how he bonded with his son. You know, but Graham Ginn is, is that playing... the Old Spice guy? 
<laughs> yeah, that okay. actor. Yeah, for Idiocracy. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's awesome. <laughs> so so uh, Graham Ginn is playing table tennis with his daughter, but it's not working, right? Mm. They're kind of stressed out. They're not really talking to each other. They happen to switch the hand they're playing with. They both start playing with their left hand. And suddenly the change like comes over them immediately. They well, calm down. Well, of course, down. because they're terrible at table tennis with their left hand. So they're just hitting the ball all over the place and giggling about it. Like that's going to loosen anyone's tension. But they become <laughs> calm. The tension drops away. There's a peaceful atmosphere. Sure, something changes in them that helps them completely relax and have a good time, you know? Yeah. And, and is that giggling because their brains are disassociating with the part of their brain that's sort of like controlling their day and like, fuck, I don't want to hang out with dad or I don't want to talk or I just want to go to my room or I just want a bag of chips or I just want a beer. Or like, you know, like let's get this. Maybe this was a bad idea. I shouldn't be at table tennis. Mm. All those like left brain thoughts that like sort of, hamper our ability to relax and and hang out you know um tony on the other hand in 1995 which was a billion years ago he overstretched his left hemisphere of his brain he says the left hemisphere of his brain fell asleep when he spent three days and three nights awake in a row so this so one of the authors spent three days and three nights awake when this happened, he claims that the right side of his brain stayed awake and he experienced on the last day 20 minutes of complete euphoria. He said mm. during this brief window, he found his perceptual abilities to be superior to those of his normal self. Now, let me ask you, have you ever experienced an altered state of consciousness? You're a musician, so maybe it's in a in a in an incredible like i don't want to say these words because i already like turned myself into a dad but like an incredible jam session (laughs) or like you know like have you experienced an altered state of consciousness due to lack of sleep playing music performing you're an actor too acting any of that stuff yeah i i don't know that i have like a specific moment that like like that story um but i do know that feeling without knowing that that's what it was that's what i was experiencing um but it's kind of just where like everything in the universe feels like it like lines up and clicks and like you you don't have to think about what you're doing you just you just do it and and that i'm i'm mainly thinking about like when i play piano and and just kind of like read music and just like de-stress and just play for fun like just sight read whatever but yeah it comes to a point where it's like i'm not struggling to be like oh what's the key signature how fast am i playing this where do i need to put the pedal down you know and and you're just like you're just playing but that's like in the background you playing your and your mind can actually be free and like be elsewhere so i think that's kind of maybe what you're talking about that's that's the first thing that comes to mind anyway. <laughs> I could never do that. I mean, I could do that with the guitar. Like mm-hmm. I I used to, in high school, I used to sit down in my room, like lock the door and just put on like a candle or something and just play into like a tape recorder for like hours. I stopped yeah. doing that, but I would go into like a trance kind of with that and really enjoyed that. And unfortunately, I never did that again after those years of high school, but but yeah, so piano, but Sounds let me like you need to start back up again. 
but there's gotta be, there's gotta be more. And I know you, and I want you to think about it and maybe come up with something or let me know if you think of something, but let me ask you this, like, what is one of the most powerful performances that you've had either acting or music? Powerful. I guess what, what are you looking for when you say powerful, like powerful in the response that I got from it or like personal, like in the feeling that you had, like you walked away and you were like, whoa, like, what was that? You know? <laughs> One time um, I was in a show uh, and I had to hold this like champagne glass and like cheers it to myself. I was like singing to myself about my own like promotion or whatever. And uh, I, you know, then you look out to the crowd and you're and you're singing out and I'm holding the glass and uh, it shattered in my hand. <laughs> so I must have just been holding it too hard or I don't know, but it, it was real glass, but it shattered and I didn't really think anything of it. I was just like, oh, I'm going to put that down and pretend that didn't happen. And I kept going on with the song, saying the whole song, whatever, finish the scene and then left the stage. And when I got backstage, all of my uh, supporting cast was like, oh, my God, like come, running up to me with like Band-Aids and stuff. Like apparently my whole hand was like sliced open and it was just bleeding all over the floor. <laughs> Dude. And I had no idea. I was so in it. I just didn't even, wasn't even, boop. and I was like, oh, wow. That is a very insane story. <laughs> <laughs> that is not, I don't even know if that's what we're talking about. That was like an altered <laughs> state of craziness. Yeah, but maybe the the blood loss like cre created that. <laughs> you definitely lost consciousness there. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was going to say another another um, one that came to mind was in performing wise is like <laughs> in my marching band when when we like finish the song and, and we do like a like a park and blow kind of thing. So like our heads are up and and the song finishes and you just hear like the echo of the of the band and the drum line like like falling away like that. And then you just hear like the crowd like roaring. But it's really it's like def it's like a deafening roar. Uh, those are like the best moments ever. <laughs> I think those moments when you're playing music and with in, in a crowd of people, like, yeah, you know, you kind of achieve that. I, I happen to think that like acting music, like performing, I think it's like in a world where most of us has never even met a shaman or, or <laughs> like a spiritual healer legitimately, or like been a part of like, a you know, I don't know, like an, an all night, spiritual kind of uh are you talking about ayahuasca vision quest <laughs> uh well yeah i mean i don't know about that i think some people have done that but that's <laughs> i'm talking about like a purposeful spiritual guided kind of thing or not guided but you know i think performing intention can, can kind of i think it's kind of like we were trying our bodies or our subconscious is trying to channel what we need which is a connection to the to the divine to the unseen and so going back to the show like was there a golden age you know even the idea of that to me i don't know why like it's cringy or it's a little bit like no <laughs> that's some bullshit but like there <laughs> there is a reference to the golden age you know mm -hmm. uh i think iggy pop has a song like golden years or something oh that's david bowie Golden years. Is it? That's, I'm pretty sure it's David Bowie. Golden years. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, that's, totally on, that's in Bowie. A Knight's Tale. Oh, that's awesome. I think I first heard that song in Trainspotting <laughs> soundtrack. Nice. Okay, so 
Good call. Thank you for saving our ass there with the David Bowie. <laughs> Sorry, reference. Iggy. Sorry, Iggy. I'm sure you had other good songs. All right. So the writer Hesoid, a classical writer of the Golden Age, used to talk about the Golden Age as men lived as gods. Their hearts were free from sorrow in a land abundant with fruit mm. and rich in flocks. The the language there ties to all the themes of this book. The Greek philosopher Dicarchus. So he's from the 4th century BCE. He talked about godlike men that lived a life of leisure, health and peace, friendship, without care or toil, and without the desire to continue feuds and wars. Their life was easy for food. Everything grew simultaneously. Um, And I think that's interesting because the word feuds. Like, how many feuds do people have with each other these days? Mm. You know, how much beef, how much online bullshit? Like, you know, your neighbor, your friend, it could be like your best fucking friend or your girlfriend. And you wake up like, mm, no, like we have shit to talk about. You know, like you you have like you create feuds in your mind. Like, I always think like, is that like a problem with the brain? Like, how do I clean that out of my head? You know, right. like this, these, these little feuds that we have, you know? Um, and so, so they go into a little bit of like some of the myths of the end of the fall from grace. So the Hindu transition, uh, identifies four epochs, four periods, each marked by a decline in the moral and physical standards. So there's literally like quarters of decline. So the Kriti Yuga was the perfect age in Hinduism. Man had no worldly desires, diseases, sorrows, or fears. That was followed by the Treta, the Vapara, and I apologize if I'm butchering this, and the Kali Yuga. That's pretty straightforward. Kali Yuga. We are in the Mm -hmm. Kali Yuga, which is if if, if each age of man after the Kriti Yuga, which was like the perfect age, everything was sort of decreased by a quarter then that means only a quarter of man's virtue remains, right? Mm. Wow. But then what does that mean after that? Like once we leave this Kriti Yuga period? (laughs) I don't think it's good. Well, it depends on what you see as good, right? In terms of the cleansing. Or does it start over again where we can go back to that period of... I mean, is this true though? Like at some level there's... I feel like there's less pillaging and raping and burning than there used to be right <laughs> there we're we're cutting down on the amount of slaves we have in this world but at the same time there's still i i was watching this documentary and it was discussing the statistics of human trafficking and mm. like it's apparently i don't know I, I might be misquoting this but it was like apparently like a 150 billion dollar industry human trafficking selling humans peoples children like women <laughs> of like, course it is like insane. and that's why that's why people do it because that's how they get rich this idea that we're all good i mean sometimes i think we all feel it underneath the surface things can go south real quick like oh, if yeah. there's some sort of a catastrophe or some the amount of guns in this country alone like i mean there is just there's tons of murders and shootings. Like, like there's a lot of ways that you can see what they're referring to, right? And yeah, definitely. And it and it all has this sheen on it of like 
our society being better than it ever was and also worse and getting worse, you know? Um, I mean, it's still not like Atlantis. We're still not like trying to have sex with like animal humans or whatever the hell the Atlanteans did to, that's a whole thing. Like, you know, there's this belief that the Atlanteans, like they, they were this incredibly advanced civilization that had like a, like a renewable energy of some kind. And they fell from grace because they just descended into like all kinds of weird genetic reading <laughs> and like just just things that were not okay to let's say the gods Yikes. or the earth who knows so um the zambian myths in in the zambian myths the first man uh kimonu started to kill animals created by the god nyambi and he was forced from the garden the hopi this is what the hopi said there came among them a handsome one in the form of a snake with a big head he led the people mm. still further away from one another and their pristine wisdom. They became suspicious of one another and accused one another of wrongfully until they became fierce and warlike and began to fight one another. Nearly every tradition, according to Richard Heinberg in his Memories and Visions of Paradise, he says nearly every tradition ascribes the loss of paradise to the appearance of some tragic aberration in the behavior of human beings. It brings things out of this superhero, like Marvel simplification of things, right? It puts the yeah. blame on us. How can you save us from ourselves? You know, <laughs> it's a lot easier if, if, if a God gets tossed on his ass through the clouds, you know, and then he has to fight evil or something. But when we all as a whole fall from grace you know how do we even think about this we are the evil and the ones who need to be protected yeah and and you were talking about myths it's like this idea that there was a single divine self that was split into two you know mm. one one being a more fallen delusional self that has assumed control of the whole situation you know i wonder like do you sometimes feel like there are two I don't want to say two voices, but there are two paths inside of you. And like the wrong one is kind of driving and calling all the shots sometimes. Like, like it's not the you that is kind all the time. You know, it's, it's like, we're not really in touch with this profound spiritual kindness that I think a lot of us believe in. You know what I mean? We know, we know it to be true because it comes up. You know, people cry and sympathize with each other and embrace each other. But um, anyway, we'll, yeah, we'll... No, I, I don't know if there's only two ways, though. I, I see it as like a spider web of many paths and options. And and but but there. Yeah, there is like it, it almost seems easier to choose that more wrongful path that could lead you down many other wrong choices and paths. Um, just because uh, choosing the right path or, you know, like it, it puts too much pressure on 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 yourself being like, oh, I have to do the right thing and, and which way is the right way. And, and sometimes it just feels easier to just choose what what the first thing that comes to mind is or, you know, like don't put in the effort it takes to be that kind person or make the, the proper choice for humanity and yada, yada. Like that takes a conscious effort versus unconscious, immediate, uh, quick results, you know, not always the positive option. And it, it seems like making, if you were to make those spiritual choices all the time, like 
it seems like that would come from a place of enlightenment, not a place mm-hmm. of being emotional. You know, sometimes you make a choice because you're because bad things happen to you and you're protecting yeah. yourself or you're angry about something or you know you're or you're just straight up failing through life for a little while or or you're just kind of moving back and forth through this very uncentered state the question they propose is you you mentioned instead of it being the all the good alternative being like this instinctual like let's if we divorce it from the spiritual idea, but like this instinct and this drive to where things are just easier, you know, yeah, where you make decisions easier and you're in a flow. Like they talk about like there's a reason behind that. The reason has to do with this left brain having dominance over the self. Let me go into what that means. Dr. Ian McGillicrest, who spent 20 years researching the distinct ways the two hemispheres work. And in order to kind of prove this idea that that or to to begin to piece together this idea that different parts of the brain behave differently, he starts to reference these lab results, these research papers, these studies. So the master and the emissary, he's basically pointing out that each hemisphere has significantly different perceptual, cognitive, and psychological traits. Um, And the conclusions of this study and a lot of the studies they reference, they believe they go against, like there's this trend now to just consider the left and right side of the brain as this oversimplistic dichotomy. Like it's too simple. Yeah. Oh, your left brain or your right brain. Like it's not, it's not, none of it. We're not saying that like everybody has both, right. Unless they've had some surgery or something like that or something, some kind of an accident. Right. But, um, but the question is like where what is happening in each side because different things happen on each side and different things happen as a result of losing part of your brain as well and i think that that gives us some clues well look he says he argues that the perceptually dominant left hemisphere has become too dominant so dr ian mcgillicrest also believes this resulting in a world of its own creation that reflects its so-called specialized ability. So basically the left side of the brain has taken over and has created this world for itself. And you can mm. kind of see it, you can, you're going to see it in these a few of these definitions I give you right now. So he's talking about the left side of the brain. How can we characterize it? It's an increasingly mechanistic, fragmented, decontextualized world. It's marked by unwarranted optimism mixed with paranoia, and a feeling of emptiness reflecting the unopposed action of a dysfunctional left hemisphere. I mean, that sounds like our world, like unwarranted optimism, paranoia, emptiness, incredibly mechanistic. I mean, we believe animals are basically just survival mechanisms full of chemicals. We believe things are, you know, people are a means to an end. The economy is a machine. Everything is part of the machine and industry. I I don't know. Did you ever read the book by Betty Edwards drawing on the right side of the brain? No. It's a book that I remember being around when I was younger. And this is a really good quote from her. She says, The dominant left verbal hemisphere doesn't want too much information about the things it perceives, just enough to recognize and characterize. The left Hmm. brain, in this sense, learns to look quickly and says, right, that's a chair, 
that's an umbrella, that's a tree, that's a dog, because the brain is overloaded most of the time with incoming information that it, it seems that one of its functions is to screen out a large portion of incoming perceptions. So mm. the left side of the brain is just characterizing everything, right? And this is coming from an artist at, well, and an artist and a teacher that's trying to teach you to draw, drawing from the yeah. other side of the brain because drawing, apparently, that skill comes from the other side of the brain, not the logical side. The logical side will tell you an umbrella is, oh, it's easy. I'll draw it for you. Boom, boom, boom. But have you looked at it? Are you looking? Are you paying attention? You know, and I think her quote speaks for itself. Um People have learned that from studying children's art, that we know that around the age of 10, the concept of what a thing looks like takes precedence over direct observation. That's the left's way of processing based on classification of words, symbols over spatial and holistic perception. Um, you know, kids will just start drawing Spider-Man and, and like different, you know, they won't draw like this incredible, crazy picture of their parents on fire and a demon oh coming my. to get them or i don't know i was thinking about a horror film like the babadook but seen anyway. that happen yeah and a few horror films yeah right <laughs> those are that i bet those kids are younger than 10 hopefully so i mean what do you associate with the left side of the brain what is your guess um, as far as what 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 research has kind of shown that that i've already said some something yeah but. well it's the logical side of your brain uh so yeah i i think characterization is is good like or sorry cat categorization and uh but but other things like math yeah the things that make logical sense on pen and paper very good science <laughs> science <laughs> science french science so left side of the brain time processing time sequence the sequence of things speech okay. speech itself language mm. right side of the brain math creativity spatial awareness and pattern recognition so they've oh, hooked really they've that's hooked, the right side of the brain that's the right side of the brain spatial pattern awareness and pattern recognition and you know it makes me wonder like what side of the brain like puzzles are solved with you know oh, i think puzzles are definitely a left thing like but oh what, you gotta use but what if and... it's but some puzzles are very like you have to recognize symbols and and patterns and you have to remember a pattern and apply it, you know? I don't know. Well, that's why the pattern one kind of that surprises me that that would be characterized as a as a right brain attribute. Well, they've hooked people up to scanners and reading and solving math lights up the left side of the brain, but the right side is more active when you're recognizing faces and mm -hmm. listening to music. It made me think there was this recent report, and I don't know if it's true, and I'm not trying to spread weirdness about Brad Pitt, but uh, there was this recent oh, news story that he, he has, has face blindness. Yeah, he has issues recognizing people's faces, even if he's known them yeah. a long time or it's like a family member. I don't know if it's a family member, but something like that. And I wondered, like, does this have to do with issues that he has on the right side of his brain? You know, right. is, is there something connected to that? You know, we're not the only beings that have these dual structured brains. Animals have dual structured brains. You'd asked about bonobos. I have a <laughs> feeling that they have dual structured brains as well. Don't most animals have? The difference is that the, both sides are more alike in other species than us. 
the difference is more marked for us, you know? Right. Even though, you know, brains look like brains. Yeah, but I, I feel like I do remember reading something about that, that that, that like uh, evolution over time, the split between our brain, like the physical makeup of that has gotten deeper, like the valve, whatever that separates the brains. Well, it's definitely making me want to learn more about this idea. So we were talking about plants. Uh, there is a lot about this plant situation, but I'll just summarize and say, what they're talking about is this unique symbiotic relationship that we used to have to the plant kingdom. They believe okay. that eating tons of fruit, I don't know, many, many years over time that we were dependent on fruits for what they did for us. And basically they're saying ingesting the hormonally, I never heard of fruit regarded this way, the hormonally <laughs> active and biochemically rich reproductive organs of angiosperms. The next time, Yikes. the next time your husband's eating a piece of fruit, I'm going to be like, "Are you enjoying that hormonally active, biochemically rich reproductive organ?" <laughs> angiosperm of angiosperms. Are you enjoying your sperms? Oh my gosh. That that had a huge effect on our chemically and hormonally sensitive neural system. So, when you say fruits, but you're talking about plants, and, and things that grow from like flowers, are you, is this also kind of referencing vegetables? I mean, are they just kind of including all of that? Like anything that comes from a plant or specifically flowers? Like I think strawberry, you know how strawberries, have you ever seen their like life cycle of how they grow? They, they like their little flower blossom and then it closes up and all the seeds that were at the center of the flower blossom turn like inside out. And that's what becomes all the seeds that you see on the outside of the strawberry like they're directly there it's like an inside out flower basically and that's why the little green tuft is at the bottom because those are all the leaves wow went like this i think they're talking about fruit um okay like fruit pri only fruit primarily yes yes okay. i mean veggies sure uh but they're talking about a lot of fruit and and nuts yeah. Fruit, fruit and nuts, yeah, nuts, yeah, things that you would find in a forest environment, yeah, you know, berries. So, like digging through trees and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, I'm not gonna get into it, but I kind of have a feeling that like a lot of vegan theories tie into this concept that our jaws and our origins and kind of this idea that we we were fine eating fruits and vegetables and we didn't need animal products. I think right. the, the, the complexity of this is sort of first there are theories about the origins of human beings, because we don't have a whole lot of clues. Like we don't have like tons of skeletons that show the exact connection between where we came from, right? The missing links mm -hmm. of our species, other ape species, the exact link between foods and all this stuff. And, um, and also we're not the same as those beings. We're not like we changed, you know, that's what we're talking about. There was a huge change. So can you deny the brain protein on the level that we need it. I don't know. That's not what we're trying to cover here. But they do talk about this being a very important relationship. And that's because they they believe that the growth of an undifferentiated neural brain tissue and the structures, basically the growth of this unseparated neural brain tissue and this plasticity of the juvenile period 
came as a result of the symbiotic relationship. So our brains were growing and growing because we were eating the kinds of things that were rich and, you know, hormonally active and, you know, blocked steroid production. You're saying that the fruits blocked steroid production? Yeah. Whereas processed foods, grains, I think they create like steroid production. Room for, yeah. 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 And that Mm -hmm. deregulates hormones and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's their theory. Totally. Freaky. Yeah, totally. But like, I mean, are, so are we suggesting that when we deviated from eating such a rich fruit, nut, plant-based diet that it actually made the brain shrink or just plateau because of what we replaced? Well, it yeah, it's funny that you say that because there are theories that the brain is shrinking. I mean, we, we reached hmm. this period of growth and now it's shrinking again. Um, yeah. It's not... That's growing. just from TikTok, though. It's That's not, not from what you eat. It's not growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, TikTok ain't good for you either. I mean, <laughs> especially when people are eating Tide Pods and stuff. Uh, you Woo! know, that's not that's not good for your brain either. One of the earliest researchers uh, about this idea of the divided brain by the 1860s uh, by a Paul Broca. He noted the disturbance of language function in patients linked to lesions on the left side of the brain. He discovered that a complex learned ability depended on one side of the brain structures, and it helped him form the concept of cerebral dominance, which is the idea that like one hemisphere serves a particular function. So he started to pioneer yeah. this idea because he was working with patients that had lesions on their brain. Um, Did you say when this was? Sorry. 1860s. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's kind of sort of the origins of this these ideas. Still pretty recent, though. Sure. That's when science started to hit its stride, right? So in terms of speech, right, what are the facts behind speech? Because speech could be argued to exist in both hemispheres, but people, it's apparently speech for 98% of right-handed people is located in the left hemisphere. And for left-handed people, speech is 65% located in the left hemisphere. Really? That's amazing how much lower that percentage is, though. Yeah, I think that's their point for sure. So since speech is associated with the way we think and reason, it became known as the dominant side of the brain. Um, The movement of your right hand is controlled by your left hemisphere. So... Mm -hmm. The two hemispheres can be in conflict. Like if you have both hemispheres analyzing a situation and they come up with different conclusions, these researchers are saying that one side has to be right. Like you have to come to some kind of a conclusion about something. But biologists are starting to see that they both have their advantages. I mean, they used to literally think of the right side of the brain as a vestigial um, organ, like an extra Mm -hmm. waste part of the body and it's not that at all and it you know something interesting is like it, it depends on if we to say that it's the dominant side of the brain now knowing more it's you can't really say that because it depends on your culture like western societies you know words are really important like your kids first words like oh the second they start talking you're gonna shower them with information words <laughs> who's daddy who's mommy like oh do you like yeah. pizza you know whatever it is like <laughs> no only fruits <laughs> right it, apparently in uh, in the east 
African and Native American cultures, they have a different view of language. They prefer to communicate with children more via body language than words, you know, rather than speaking to their children from a distance. Uh, according to them, the mothers hold their babies close and try to feel their needs like through physical mm. touch um, instead of like speaking to them. Right. Would um, physical touch be a more right, right sided brain, brain attribute? Yeah. Like uh, body language. Body language is right side of yeah. the brain. You know, even though kids that don't learn how to speak a lot at an early age, they will develop speech later on. They're mm-hmm. they're wondering does does being more in tune with them physically give them a chance to develop more of a body awareness? You know, right? Um, is it important to let kids kind of fuck around with stuff and you know grab objects and <laughs> learn how to explore the world physically instead of telling them no, you do this, don't do this, you know, like yeah. don't say yeah. this, don't be quiet, you know, don't speak too loud, you know, that kind of thing. Which which can halter their inhibitions to be creative later in life. Exactly. So then there are some interesting cases, and this is where with skeptics, you know, I I wonder if they've seen like a lot of the research or a lot of the cases of people who have had part of their brain either neutralized or traumatized. Oh, here we go. Lobotomies. <laughs> this is the lobotomy section of the show. No, not exactly. This is the story. Not yet. So, so there's a story of a nine-year-old boy. He transformed from an ordinary boy to... Um, a genius mechanic after a bullet destroyed part of his left hemisphere. Whoa. Not having those abilities before, suddenly having them, right, at the age of nine. Yikes. 10-year-old Orlando Sorrell from Newport News, Virginia, acquired his abilities after a baseball struck him on the left side of the head. After the injury Uh. healed, he could perform calendar calculations of incredible complexity. He could recall the weather where he was and what he was doing for every single day after the accident. And his <laughs> his story made headlines. I mean, it, it reminded me, I had to look up that movie from the 90s about that. I don't think he gets hit in the head, but that kid that gets injured in baseball and then he becomes like a major league player. Did you ever see that movie? Rookie of the Year. Mm. Oh, Rookie of the Year. Yeah. I know of it. I I don't know that I saw that. Nor did I know that's what it was about. (laughs) But I don't think he gets hit in the head. Um, There's another case of Stephen uh, Wiltshire, uh, an autistic savant. He had severe learning disabilities, but he had an incredible talent for drawing. At 11, Mm -hmm. he drew the Natural History Museum and other London landmarks to such a high standard um, that the architect and artist Sir Hugh Cason described him as the best child artist in Britain. Um, <laughs> Dang! They did a documentary about him, and the a documentary covered his story. They took him on a thirty-minute helicopter ride over London. They didn't let him take any photos or anything. When he got to the ground, he drew a completely accurate aerial drawing of four square miles. Whoa! His pencil never That's stopped. Like what you were saying about sorry about the um like how much are we actually visually seeing when we're looking at things rather than just categorizing and taking basic details it's like what are you actually seeing <laughs> details well yeah and i guess and i guess if the left side of the brain is trying to like no no no, shut up I, i'm gonna draw i'm gonna draw this picture you know and the right side of the brain's like but i'm a genius and i can draw yeah. this with my eyes closed but okay yeah. left side you know 
Photographic memory. Right. Where does that come from? And why do some people have access to that and other people don't? You know? Yeah. That's like a superpower for sure, you know? Um, apparently, his pencil never stopped and he never corrected his work. So it was like photographic. So it was basically. a one line. Yeah. But not only Freaky. photographic, but he had the ability to draw, you know, that well. He right, al- right. He also did and this accurately. in Rome. And so, you know, they're they're asking, like, what gives people these abilities? How come some people have them, some people don't, which we just discussed. Savants often have functional damage to the left hemispheres and mm. really exceptional skills to the right. You remember that movie Rain Man? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was about a savant, right? Somebody who, who was disabled in certain ways uh, in terms of certain... You know, social, in terms of logistical ways, social way cues and yeah, yeah, things like that. But then a genius at mathematics and and, and other things like that. Um, <laughs> or or I don't know what you would reading cards. I mean, it's been a long time. Well, remember, he like read that whole book in like six seconds. He was like, yeah, <laughs> man, that was a great movie. Um, OK, so, you know, there was a professor, Alan Snyder, who is a director for the Center for the Mind in Australia that had a, I just wanted to include this, that had the idea of switching off the left hemisphere with magnetic interference field. I do wonder if in the future we're going to have like devices instead of taking pills that could you imagine using a device to like just get up in the morning. Turn off your hypothalamus when you're feeling sad. (laughs) Yeah. And, but maybe that could be effective. I don't know. That is freaky though. Think about how many things could go wrong. Oof. I mean, we're we're talking about, you know, uploading our minds into computers or uploading computers into our minds. Having a little device ah. that like shuts up one side of your brain doesn't sound so bad compared to that stuff. <laughs> let's take a break and let's go into synchronicity. I have two. All right, hit me. Uh, so this is a weird synchronicity, but um, that's perfect. A couple, <laughs> we like the weird ones. Yeah. A couple months ago, I found out I needed a a foot surgery, and on the same day that I found out that I was going to need that surgery, I was having you know like a crazy day or whatever. It was very overwhelming because it just happened all of a sudden. Um, but one of my best childhood friends posted a, a Snapchat of uh, his foot in a cast. <laughs> And the same day, apparently, he, like, stepped off a counter and broke his whole bottom of his foot, like, fractured. Um, But it happened on the same day, so I thought that was very interesting. And then he had surgery exactly a week after I had mine. Um, Wait, so he he posted a picture of the cast on the day that you were going to go in for surgery? Uh, The day that I found out I needed surgery, he posted a picture of his foot in a cast. It was, like, a slipper cast or whatever, like, the ones that just hold your foot together before you... Because he needed to get Before surgery, you have so surgery. He had, he had a, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a pretty... Yeah. That's interesting. Parallel... Yeah. Parallel paths. Foot... Yeah, Foot definitely. synchronicities. <laughs> foot synchronicities. This is... I mean, both of these synchronicities are kind of about, like, failing 
body parts. <laughs> so that one was the one about the feet. And then uh, this happened shortly after that, maybe like a couple weeks after. Um, but I was talking to my aunt and she was telling me that she just gotten home from the doctor's office and she was diagnosed with kidney failure that day. And like at the moment that she said kidney failure, I was like, I, I was looking up at my TV and um, I my the Hulu button got like pushed like I accidentally pressed the button on the remote that goes straight to Hulu and um, our account name on Hulu is kidney because that's Kyle and Sydney's name like merged together wow um, but it was yeah it was just like a really weird like whoa <laughs> um, I, yeah. I and I told her I was like I was like I have two kidneys um, not counting the ones on my Hulu screen, but I was like, I can give you my kidney if you need it. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Who cares about synchronicities? Is she okay? Are you giving her a kidney? <laughs> I, I haven't heard any more updates. I mean, I, I think it's it's at a manageable point right now, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Isn't that kind of secretly good that she hasn't called you back to call in that favor? Yeah, no news is good news, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're, like, you don't, you're like, oh, she forgot about it. <laughs> That's hey, remember great. that time? <laughs> she comes knocking yeah. on your door, uh, Sydney. I mean, kidney. <laughs> I mean, kidney. It's funny though, right? Isn't that well, you know, a lot funny. of a lot of my synchronicities are. We need to come up with a term for this, where the TV is speaking to you. I love that. Yeah. I love when the TV yeah. speaks to you. It's like, but that's kind of Twilight Zoney. It's it's like, yeah. why does technology have to be the one that like has to like come in through this weird? It's Philip K. Wavelength. Dick, Philip K. Dick, <laughs> and the Valis. It's like, it's it's this satellite energy. It's you know, I realized today actually because my synchronicity is a TV synchronicity. I realized oh, nice. today that it's like I'm home a lot. And I'm mm. using technology a lot more than I'm interacting with trees or humans or children that can have time traveling messages for me. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm so, yeah. so the messages come through any way they can, I think. And it's spooky that they can use technology or, or that they come through using technology. I don't know. It's, it's spooky and it's also very sci-fi and cool. I love it. So mine happened last night and And I wanted to talk about this anyway. Out of nowhere, I saw on Netflix that there's this show that is called um, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. And it's on the History Channel. Have you heard of this show? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. I think it's on our list, actually. Or maybe I already watched it. It's on its... It's not the movie Skinwalker Ranch by Jeremy Corbell. It's a TV show. Yeah. And get Get this shit. It's Skinwalker. When I see this show, I'm like, oh my God, Skinwalker Ranch, right? So my synchronicity is kind of silly, but but it, it, just discovering this show was exciting to me and I wanted to talk about it at some point. I didn't expect to talk about it during the synchronicity section, but I'll be real quick. <laughs> Basically, like uh, the Skinwalker Ranch, the book uh, that was co-authored by George Knapp um, is an incredible story of Robert Bigelow. Mm-hmm. You know, the entrepreneur buying that property, all the insane stuff that happened there, the portals, the entities, the UFO sightings. It's crazy. And I remember at some point in this incredible book, they talk about the farmers that live there, the Shermans. Um, It's an amazing book. And at some point they talk about the new owners. And I remember thinking to myself, damn, like 
I don't know who the new owners are. Like, we're never going to know anything about that place again. Like, it sucks. Like, we're never going to know, like, an updated story. Fast forward to discovering the secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which I'm super late on. And it's on its, like, third season. The first season is on Netflix now. It is the new owners, which is a real estate entrepreneur that's super curious about the phenomenon that has assembled a team of scientists to research the craziness of Skinwalker Ranch. So I am watching this show in between preparing for our show. I'm like blown away. I like can't believe that there's this show. Not only that, it's not with like a bunch of clowns. It's not like Duck Dynasty. That's what I was gonna say. UFO Is it like reality show? Not knocking Duck Dynasty because I've never seen that show, but it's not no. a bunch <laughs> of like it's not a bunch of clowns. It's like real scientists, real people, people with integrity that I watch the show and I'm like, okay, I believe these people. And Here's here's something weird. So I see them talking. I'm there, I'm somewhere in the fifth episode, right? And I see them talking about some of the weird stuff going on. And they've discovered mm-hmm. this electromagnetic radiation. They've discovered a ton of radiation that's either coming from above the ranch or below the ranch. And it's like insanely oh, wow. weird that a high level of radiation could be coming from above this ranch because that just doesn't happen. The, the the further you go up into the atmosphere, the more radiation is supposed to dissipate, like especially those high levels of energy. So this scientist is on there. His name is Dr. Travis Taylor. He's like sort of the way the show starts. He's the scientist that shows up to the ranch. It's like kind of cheesy, but it's kind of awesome too that this, this <laughs> cool, he's like a Southern guy, a very accomplished scientist. Um, He's talking about – they're talking constantly about Robert Bigelow and that book that was written. And they're saying that one of the theories is that this could be like – there could be like a portal basically or like a wormhole to another world, to another dimension in this area. And that sort of explains the weird activity, the influx of Mm -hmm. radiation. As he says the word portal, I am shooting a portal with my hand (laughs) – in a video game called Portal. Like I'm playing the original Portal. <laughs> I am shooting a portal. I'm literally shooting. I'm going to say that one more time. I'm shooting a portal out of my hand. That was my synchronicity. Like the word Portal, the action of shooting a portal. And I'm watching this insane show where they're discussing in a kind of a plausible way this insane theory about what's happening on this ranch. So that was my synchronicity. Fast forward to me looking up this show a little bit, and I went on Mystery Wire, which is George Knapp, uh, his website and his database for the paranormal. It's a great website. And this guy, Dr. Travis Taylor, he's not just one of these ancient alien clowns. Like He is a top scientist and researcher who happens to have – they happens to have revealed – after going on the show, George Knapp discovers that he has been chosen by the Pentagon to be their chief scientist for the UAP task force Whoa. created by Congress to fully investigate military encounters with advanced unknown aircraft and objects. This is the real deal. And the fact that this guy is all over the news right now is really cool. Yeah. Skinwalker Ranch is an incredible place. It, they look at it, the new owners look at it as a laboratory for studying the paranormal and they're treating it seriously. I can't wait to watch the whole show because I can't even believe it exists. And it's really exciting that we have this 
guy who has a 20-year career supporting NASA, the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I mean, he has had many customers. He, the guy has a doctorate in aerospace systems engineering. He's got a doctorate in optical science, engineering, and engineering, a master's degree in physics, a master's degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering, a master's degree in astronomy. Who has time Jesus. to do all those things? Yeah, like, is he is he even human? Like he's been in school his entire life. It sounds like I think right and the left side of his brain work extremely well with this guy. <laughs> do we have any history of uh, trauma to the left the left side of the head? <laughs> well, no, but it's interesting because he's like a scientific genius, right? In a way, and yeah. like, and at the same time, it's science, right? It's math. I don't know. It's like, I don't believe that it's that simple that math and science is just on one side of the brain because I believe that there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of flow state meditative magic happening in the mind of somebody who's super talented at these things. Maybe yeah. not all the time, but anyway, it's super exciting. Uh, if you guys want to look up an interview that he has with George Knapp on Mystery Wire, um, it's super cool. He's a science fiction novelist. He caught the attention of the government because he wrote a book about uh, sort of the protocol that a scientist or the, they should follow upon making alien contact. This guy's brilliant. And the fact that he- What's he, the book? He went on, I'm not sure what that book is called, but he went on the show Skinwalker Ranch, like complete skeptic. Like yeah. he did not, he believed that it was either other governments or bad actors, he says, or something like that. He really did not believe that there was anything to that phenomenon. But then the second mm. the show starts, he has a UFO encounter uh, sighting there. So it's really, really cool. And it's really cool that my synchronicity was about that. That concludes our. So there's other stories of people with these abilities. They talk about how epileptics have had part of their left hemisphere removed epileptics who have mm -hmm. had part of their left hemisphere removed, they don't necessarily stop understanding language. The right hemisphere takes over the language function. Right. And so there's evidence that the right hemisphere could be even better with language or at least could have strengths when it comes to language. Um, not only that, like Daniel Tamant, um, he can perform he, this is a kid who can perform extraordinary math calculations at fast speeds right he's probably not a kid anymore but um <laughs> but he also speaks seven languages french german Jeez. spanish lithuanian lithuanian uh icelandic esperanto and english and he started developing his own language that he called manti and by the way icelandic is a super hard language to learn apparently and he mastered it in a week. His situation in a week? His situation was he had an epileptic fit when he was three years old. You know, even though there was damage to the left side of the brain, his language obviously abilities were unparalleled. Um Wow. So brain damage can cause these abilities in savants, dementia later in life, a blow to the head. Pretty crazy. Kind of makes me want to go wrap the left side of my brain and see what happens. Let's chuck baseballs at the left sides of our brain. <laughs> so the body is connected to the nervous system, connected in kind of a crisscross way. The dominant left controls the right. The dominant right controls the left. Most people are right-handed because in most people, their left side of their brain is in control. 
Um, some people have kind of ambidextrous abilities, um, mm-hmm. but ninety percent of people are right-handed. Only ten, maybe eleven percent are left-handed. I'm surprised it's that low. I know so many left-handed people. <laughs> <laughs> you're hanging with the you're hanging with the right crowds. Let me tell you, or the left. Yeah. The well, left both my mom crowds. and my brother are lefties, and I actually really? started riding with my left hand as a kid, but my dad made me switch. Ooh, buddy bone. No way. <laughs> yeah. They talk about that here. They talk about how parents would try to correct this because they would see it as like abnormal, and they wouldn't want them to do it. So. <laughs> Did you know that Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo are alleged to have been left-handed, right? These geniuses at art. So getting away from the savants and sort of the research behind left and right brain theories that are supported by that kind of information, he gets into something that's of a lo- strong importance to me because the reason I gravitated towards this book was this topic. This idea is that sleep deprivation has the ability to suppress the left brain's dominance. Mm. Sleep deprivation. This is an insane story, but the Daily Mirror apparently reported that a 55-year-old Vietnamese woman had not slept in 38 years. What? I just love saying this because this is absolutely insane, but... Uh, I mean, it's not like she didn't want to. She was sleepless because of a trauma that she had experienced in her life. Oh, wow. And she, but she was apparently okay. Like uh, she was going to the gym at the time that they reported this, exercising every morning, never feeling tired. Um, And doctors, doctors tried to, (laughs) her life is literally a dream. Doctors have tried everything from medication and heavy doses of drugs, not able to help her. But she's okay. To help her go to sleep? Try wow. to help her go to sleep. But okay, so the, the, the brain and the body need sleep to survive. Like you can't not sleep. So what does she do to like make up like just some kind of like body rest or something like to rejuvenate or? The stories say that she would stand in the pantry with her eyes open and just make weird cooing noises. No, I have no <laughs> idea. Stop it. I have no idea. That's creepy. I have no idea, but. <laughs> I mean, I like that the authors, they postulate this idea that like, do we really need as much sleep? The studies are as saying. As I'm here yawning. And it's and it's funny because, right, we both need sleep right now. But do, do, we, do we need as much as people say? Does everybody need the same amount? It's funny how in our society, instead of researching anything, most of us are not Joe Rogan. Like we don't even look up sources and facts and research <laughs> and whatever. I mean, it's kind of his job to, this? to research stuff so he knows what he's talking about. I mean, even he's not the most thorough researcher by any means, but you know, a lot of us just kind of take information and we're like, oh, you know, you need this. This is this is this true. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Carniv- carnivore diet is it or the vegan diet is it or you know, you have right. to sleep eight or nine hours a day. But like what if in your life I'll tell you right now, in my life, in high school and in college, and perhaps a little bit less so after that, I had experiences where I wouldn't sleep the night before, whether it was due to a paper, due to stress, due to just being crazy and just staying up all night. And I would experience like 
what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, which is like a really great day. Like I would have mm. great conversations with my teachers. I would be like my fullest self. Like I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't be doubtful. You know, I had a lot of anxiety growing up as a kid. So I remember walking through the hallways in high school and kind of feeling anxiety every time I had to look up into someone's eyes to like say hi. And mm. uh, the amount of mm. awkward highs or no highs that you say and, and, you know, to people in the hallway and like, you know, just this feeling of like constant dread. And like, I remember having these euphoric experiences when I wouldn't sleep. And I remember thinking to myself, like not knowing anything about any of this, like, God, like if I could only figure out how much to sleep or not sleep, because whatever is happening, it's helping me. It's helping me. Yeah. It's working. Maybe it doesn't have to be all the time, but can I figure out a way to incorporate this in my life so that instead of taking an antidepressant or uh, uh, some kind of a pill, which I don't take, but like um, instead of taking medicine, can we kind of tool with our sleep a little bit? Well, you, so you said you don't do that anymore. You said that was like a high school, college thing. But did you know that the correlation was the lack of sleep, that you were having all these great days? Did you know that at the time or is it more like looking back on it? I did, but I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would find anything close to a scientific conclusion or idea or yeah. research supporting that theory of mine. I just, yeah. it, for me, it wasn't a theory. For me, it was a fact. Like I would not sleep all night because I had a paper or something I was procrastinating or something, or I just wouldn't sleep because I was so, there were times in high school where I was so elated by music or I don't know, like a performance. I remember once an acting performance, I couldn't sleep all night and I had sort of a euphoric day the next day or whatever it was. Watch it, watching it or, or, or doing it? Doing it. I remember once I ah. came home from a performance and I really could not sleep. I couldn't, lower my brain activity to to calm down to sleep yeah. so like after that like wave of exhaustion and just feeling weird and sort of discombobulated a little bit like i remember entering into more of a flow state of communication with others and i just didn't have the part of my brain that was so scared right or like or or the side of the brain that cared it was like i don't care anymore i'm just gonna do and be me like what who cares and some of that you know can inhibit you a lot so just letting that go and can change your whole outlook on life who you talk to the way you talk to them and you you crave i think i i crave those moments you know i crave mm -hmm. going through my day without so much self-doubt you know i crave as an actor to be able to access my imagination without telling myself what's right and wrong or good or looks good or sounds good. You know, like you have to really, totally. you, you crave that. And I think on a spiritual level, like you can crave, you, you can crave a connection to, to the universe, to God. Um, one thing that they talk about, which I thought was really cool is that in the ancient Sumerian epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, do you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Uh, no, but I know of it. Yeah, the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest spiritual texts, right? The most ancient text that we have. They talk about using sleep as a tool in a spiritual context. And the quote is, Who will assemble the gods unto thee, that thou mayest find the life which thou seeketh? Come, 
do not sleep for six days and seven nights. What huh. Gilgamesh is challenged in this situation to defeat sleep, the brother of death, because he's on a quest to seek a mortal life. So they tell mm-hmm. him to not sleep for six days and seven nights in order to find the information he's looking for. And of course, Gilgamesh fails. Like he falls asleep, squatting down. Hey, he's human. Exactly. And the fact that it's mentioned as a tool for obtaining a spiritual goal in the most ancient text should say something. Not only that, Buddhists engage in all night periods of meditation sometimes. The Buddha himself apparently attained enlightenment after spending seven days and nights awake meditating under the Bodhi tree. You know, we talked about uh, Native Americans having vision quests and sun dances. These, These entail journeys of days and nights of continual dancing or vision questing spiritual connection yeah i mean that's you have an epiphany you have a breakthrough that could change your life you know scientists are trying to induce these things with lsd with drugs because we don't just don't have the guides for this anymore and and they say like do we need sleep as much as people think i'm just gonna be like yes like we do need sleep like (laughs) i'm not i'm not advocating that you start fucking with yourself like don't try this at home folks you know like i I still do this occasionally. I stay up, but it's not because I'm intentionally doing it. Right. Sometimes right. I just stay up doing work or whatever. I don't know. And and it gets a little weird. You know, I think one of the things that they talk about is how, you know, they were doing this one study. Well, before I go into that, this experiment that he did with not sleeping, I will say that I think they're emphasizing perhaps the right side of the brain, the side of the brain that we want to activate needs less sleep than the left side of the brain. So it's not Mm -hmm. about starving yourself completely. I mean, it is about that, I guess, if you're trying to achieve enlightenment or you're on a vision quest or something. But, um, But they're talking about like, you know, if a normal level of sleep is necessary to maintain the left and its dominance, you can maybe suppress that by starving the left of some sleep and not giving it time, just running those batteries down on the left side of your brain so yeah. that the right hemisphere can take control. Yeah, I've always called that like the the point of no return, like where you're where you're so tired, but you push through it and then like you get this sudden burst of energy again and you're like, woo, and you can do a million things and get everything com- accomplished. Most of the time, God willing, you don't fail. You don't fail, you succeed. Yeah. You finish that paper. Yeah. I can't tell you how many papers I finished in that weird, euphoric, crazy David drinking caffeine all night and finally writing his paper <laughs> and doing a great job, you know, getting through the evening. I mean, I can tell you experiences where that didn't work. A lot of the times you're okay. You can survive. Maybe not 38 years, but you can survive. So uh, there's a, it's very it's a very technical book, but it's also full of a lot of really cool experiments and ideas and science if you're interested like if you're really interested in like they talk about the aquatic ape theory they talk about like Mm. all kinds of like science behind the food the the suppression of what we talked about in terms of steroids the effects of those things so if you're interested in that a lot of that's there i wanted to talk about a couple more practical things concrete stories so okay so one of the authors 
for over a decade was personally experimenting with sleep deprivation, right? And he was able to do it one time for up to 11 days and nights of sleep deprivation. You know, I'm sure this was a controlled experiment. I'm sure he had help. You know, he didn't do this alone. I'm sure they were monitoring his vitals. Hopefully he wasn't just on his living room couch (laughs) freaking out. He talks about after over 80 hours of being awake, he experienced an extraordinary change of perception that he describes as an all-encompassing religious bliss. He believes that for about 20 minutes, and we talked about this earlier, the left side of his brain went to sleep. So it just goes counter, it's just very counterintuitive. You do these sleep deprivation tests and you expect all these qualities to be a mess. And instead, his speech mechanism dies out. The left side of his brain shuts down for 20 minutes. He experienced bliss. When When it gets restored, his voice sounded more resonant than normal. There was this expression without the precursor of thought. He didn't have to think about what he was going to say. He could express himself. This is kind of related to what I was saying about having experienced some moments like these. There was a poetic element to its structure too. This is something I've experienced too, where I'm speaking to people and there's like this weird poetic ease that comes out. And it's freaky. Actually, at at one point, not only did the, the quality of his voice change, the syntax changed. Um, There was another story of sleep deprivation. I don't know if it was him, but where somebody was only speaking in rhymes for a while and it was, and it was kind of annoying. (laughs) Like couplets. (laughs) Just like straight up rhyming. He was just straight up. Wow. You know, hitting bars of rhymes, not wanting to, you know, (laughs) like not wanting to at all, but like it's there. Can't get rid of it for a little while. You, you, you (laughs) took the roller, you took the ride. Okay, so let's bring this home with just a couple more things. So so part of Tony's sleep deprivation experiment, he finds that he has the ability to juggle, which is kind of crazy. His full-on vision is enhanced. He's able to read license plates of cars as they speed by. Here's, oh, dang. here's something really cool. His childhood memories. And we're not just talking about like, oh, deprive yourself of sleep and look at all your superpowers. We're talking about like what what's in that part of the brain? Like what what other things are there? Like it's already there, but you're just getting yeah. in tune with it. It's something you weren't able to access prior. Exactly. And something he mentions that I think I have experienced on a small level is childhood memories were experienced on a more profound and exquisite and accessible level. Do you ever have this feeling like sometimes you can channel your memories a little better than others? Or like you just have these lucid moments where you're like, wow, like I really remember. You have a pretty good memory, but like I don't know if there are moments where there are moments for me where I remember my past a little bit easier than other times. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever thought about like specific times that I have vivid memories, but it definitely has happened to me. Yeah, like suddenly this period of your childhood that's sort of in a fog and nebulous like just comes into focus and you're like, whoa. I feel like a lot of times that's always like due to some olfactory sense that's like heightened and it's like a specific smell and you're like, whoa, and you're just blown back to that like exact time and place. Totally. (laughs) You smell a smell from your childhood and you're like, whoa, it's like my living room smell. What is this? You know? (laughs) And you get all those, like the feelings that you used to have as a child that I didn't even know that I wasn't feeling anymore, but it's like these feelings that were so like deep and buried. You're like, Oh, Oh, I forgot that I was still able to feel that way. And I forgot that I used to feel that way and don't anymore. And you know, very strange. It's kind of freaky to me. Cause it's kind of like, 
I don't like remembering my childhood emotion so vividly because I'm like, were, mm. were we just like just as intelligent, if not more than we always have been, but we just had less information and we were too young and like, we didn't have the tools. Like that's what being young is. Like you got all this energy, all this intelligence. And here you are like just following the social cues and just trying to gr mm -hmm. grow fast enough so you can be like more in on the, <laughs> the ways of people, you know? So in 1998, Professor David Collins on September in September at Manchester Metropolitan University used two subjects, including Tony, and they made him stay awake for five days and four nights. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That kind of started this journey, and that's weird because that's what got me interested in this book in this first place. They had been eating for a number of years a diet exclusively rich in fruit. When they did this study, they found that their stamina, physical abilities, coordination, mental responses, breath control, heart rates, brain activity, all these things were monitored. Again, the same theme. They just didn't show, mm -hmm. they didn't show these decrease in abilities. On the contrary, they had better strength, dexterity. Um, their coordination, their coordination was good, which is weird, right? You don't want to. Yeah, you would think that would definitely go downhill. Yeah. I can't even see straight. I'm so tired. And I have a feeling that it comes in waves, right? Your your initial resistance to this, like a, your body adjusting to the shock of not getting sleep, probably yeah. like it takes a couple days and then you achieve this sort of clarity, I would think. Well, you said it was after, what did that guy say? After 80 hours, yeah. he started realizing that. Exactly. Yeah. After the uh, yeah left side of the brain takes a nap, it's like boom, superpowers. Yeah, and the Manchester study um, showed the results showed that reducing sleep changed the area of brain activation. There was a reduction in left hemisphere activity. So there is a little bit of science and studies to support this this idea. And there's obviously a lot of human history as well. You know, I was talking about the Aborigines, and and here's that that idea that they they're recorded as having clairvoyance, telepathic communication, remote viewing, psychic wow. healing, journey to other worlds. Other cultures are reported to have this. You know, they don't see them as abnormal. Like that that is the norm for them. They have those abilities. Right. Well, the connections are just endless. Like I mean, there's this really cool part that was just different from everything else we talked about where Timothy Leary himself talked about LSD enhancing sex. And what does that have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, if you can't deal with sleep deprivation, can you trick the left side of your brain to shut up and like trigger, trigger things that just kind of tough for us, you know? Um, like Timothy Leary said, LSD enhanced sex. Before taking LSD, he never stayed in a state of sexual ecstasy for hours on end, but under LSD, he could. Yikes. I mean, that's unheard of for people. So it's like it's like the blue pill for your body. He would say each caress and kiss is timeless. And that's that's a True. beautiful way to look at it. Maybe the idea of tantric sex brings you into a heightened state. Robert Anton Wilson's book, Sex and Drugs, A Journey Beyond Limits. He talks about weed, like pot, he says. That's how you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how you know this book is old because he calls it pot. Sexual intercourse <laughs> becomes more pleasurable and more relaxed. It makes you a better lover. You feel closer to your partner than you would otherwise. I can feel myself actually fusing with the other person. 
it is difficult to know even anatomically what part of myself is me and what part is the woman. Wow. And that's just from from Pat. From Pat. Freaky. Exactly. Well, I mean, I mean, that's the reason that people enjoy, uh, you know, the ganja is because it 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 prevents you from again that's like self consciousness and being like inside your own head at all times and just it just kind of like takes you out of that forced judgment of yourself and you're just like I'm just here now I'm present and relaxed and. So I could see that. I think that's the allure of drugs, you know, is is yeah. is mm-hmm. is wanting wanting that, you know, like maybe it's just a war for a lot of us against the part of our brain that's strangling us all the time, you know. I get that. And and here you have scientists trying to study it. I mean, we'll get into this in future episodes, but the idea of of using LSD and DMT. You know, there was a Hungarian chemist in 1955, Stephen Sarza who couldn't procure LSD and mescaline for a research project, so he synthesized DMT in his Budapest laboratory. He took it himself at first by eating it. It had no effect because like ayahuasca, you have to take a chemical that inhibits um, the mechanism that digests it. The gut breaks it down. Ooh, weird. When he was finally yeah. able to digest it, he said the hallucinations consisted of moving, brilliantly colored oriental motifs. Later, I saw wonderful scenes altering very rapidly. The faces of people seemed to be masked. My emotional state was elevated, sometimes up to euphoria. And we're going to end with just the idea that like DMT studies, and I can't wait to cover DMT studies and actual stories because DMT administered by the government and government funded and okay research projects on dmt have yielded crazy results with consciousness where people have been once they go over the barrier of sort of the insane feeling of it they're able Mm -hmm. to go into this loss of control barrier where they communicate with outside intelligences some of the volunteers feel like they've been abducted literally by aliens other people say it felt more real than anything real high doses of Mm. this hallucinogen create perceptual peculiarities reminiscent of split consciousness effects with schizophrenics, alien voices, voices they hear, channeling other realities. My biggest question when it comes to abduction is when is it real? And what is real? Like if something has the ability to zap inside your mind and take you away, through another dimension, through the fabric of time, but your physical body is still there. What if you are, right. what if you are your consciousness? You're not your body. So then that is real. Something lives in the real world where the consciousness is sort of housed. It understands how to get there. We're going to see that with the next book that we cover because those experiences that that guy has, they're physical. And they also seem to be of this psychic nature. So do extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings have the ability to trigger that side of the brain? You know, can they use that to their advantage? You know, I wonder. We'll continue on this. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate your support. And we will continue to grind out uh, some beautiful episodes for you to listen to. And uh, hope you enjoy them. Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 